CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What is DeFi is definitely question number one. I think the like more difficult, profound questions are around societal utility. I think that there are a lot of folks in Congress and among regulators that think the existing financial system works quite well and that the risks in it, at least since the global financial crisis, have been appropriately mitigated. And DeFi crypto is coming along and messing with the magic, so to speak. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io and Circle and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Thursday, November 10th, and today we are featuring an interview with Miller Whitehouse Levine. But before we get into that, however, if you are enjoying The Breakdown, please go subscribe to it, give it a rating, give it a review, or if you want to dive deeper into the conversation, come join us on The Breakers Discord. You can find a link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash breakdown pod. All right, guys. Well, today I am joined by Miller Whitehouse Levine. Miller runs policy at the DeFi Education Fund, which is a nonpartisan research and advocacy group that's working to explain the benefits of DeFi, achieve regulatory clarity for the future of the global digital economy, and help realize the transformative potential of DeFi for everyone. In his role as policy director, Miller is charged with developing the execution of programs that bring the organization's mission to life, which, as you will see, are pretty interesting. Miller was previously at the Blockchain Association and has a deep knowledge of what's going on in the DC crypto debate. Today, we discuss why the DeFi Education Fund is getting heavily involved in the Okidao case, the state of DeFi and the regulatory discourse, and much, much more. Hey, this is Breakdown Editor Rob, just with a note that this interview was recorded on October 24th. All right, Miller, welcome to The Breakdown. So good to have you here. Thank you for having me. Finally, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, I mean, we were just talking about this uh, before the show started, but you know, like sometimes when I'm preparing kind of my notes for a show, it's like, okay, so this is the thing that I think is super interesting about this person or what they're doing, even if maybe it's sort of, you know, not necessarily kind of what uh, a ton of other people are spending their time on. Whereas for you, it's just like you are living inside, I think, a lot of the issues that just day in, day out make up the kind of the, the substance of the breakdown. So I'm really excited to, to chat. But before we get into all of that, um, if you want to give just kind of a, a brief background of, you know, who you are and what you spend your time on, I think it'd be great. Sure. Yeah, I uh, got into Bitcoin in 2013, 2014. I was in high school at the time and have been in crypto uh, personally or professionally ever since. After graduating from college, I immediately started working in crypto at a multi-client lobbying firm. Uh, had some crypto clients, one of which was the Blockchain Association, where I went next and ran policy for, for that organization, which 
uh, grew substantially through no no part of my own, I don't think, uh, during my tenure there, and joined this new organization, the DeFi Education Fund, last August, which was created uh, pursuant to a Uniswap DAO governance proposal to focus on DeFi education uh, policy research and advocacy. So we got started up last August, and uh, we go about trying to accomplish that mission in various ways. We meet with policymakers, try to explain to them what the hell DeFi is. Uh, we write comment letters in response to rulemakings or regulatory proposals. We uh, offer our perspective on legislation, uh, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to today. And we also participate in litigation. Uh, most recently, the UPDAO case, we filed a brief and we'll be filing additional briefs and, uh, and participating in oral arguments at the end of the next month on that issue. And we also make grants to other organizations and individuals, be they uh, in the policy world or not. But, you know, to the extent that there are folks out there who have really awesome ideas that can contribute to our mission to unleash the potential of DeFi around the world from a policy perspective, uh, we, we fund that too. Um, so we try to be everywhere and uh, uh, make the case for DeFi as governments around the world uh, increasingly are, are have it under their microscopes. Super interesting. So I guess, you know, to, to kind of expand on the DeFi Education Fund just a little bit, how do you guys kind of see it as different or related to the sort of other expanse of, uh, of policy and advocacy groups that have sprung up over the last few years? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, first of all, we don't have members. We're a C4, so we're not representing anyone's specific interest. Uh, we solely represent our mission and uh, no one else's interest. And, you know, in comparison to other organizations like Coin Center, who I think has done a fabulous job of, of uh, advocating for their mission, I view ours as a bit more expansive in some ways and a bit more narrow than others. For example, you know, I think that uh, the Ukidao case being a great example, clearly something that is precedential for DAOs and users of DeFi protocols, uh, but doesn't really get to the question of whether software development or the right to freely uh, publish and develop software is being threatened. So I think that in a way we've kind of uh, filled the gap. I think we also serve as sometimes an effective uh, coordinating group for other advocacy groups in Washington and around the world on DeFi issues. Uh, very few organizations have in-house DeFi expertise and uh, you know, to the extent that we could be the, the people that uh, people want to call and pick up the phone and call to discuss DeFi issues, uh, I do think that is, is super valuable for us to be doing. You know, I think in particular, uh, representing you know, the interests of DeFi users is something that we do well. Being a DeFi user makes that a lot easier. Uh, and I think that you know, c compared to trade groups in particular, which are representing corporate interests, uh, it, it makes sense. And I hope we are effectively representing the interests of individual users and, and the technology itself. One of the things that's super interesting about the regulatory moment that we're in right now is so we clearly are in sort of a, I don't know if endgame is the right way to say it, but we're now at the point where a lot of kicking the can down the road is going to turn into something, right? There is sort of a big push to actually finally get something on the books. And this is happening both in the US, it's happening in other parts of the world. And in, in the case of Europe, 
uh, we got sort of the, or we have uh, a Mika coming. And Mika sort of still intentionally kicks the can a little bit down the road with, with DeFi, right? And it feels like, you know, so we're recording this on Monday, October 24th. It'll probably come out about a week later. But obviously, a lot of the conversation that we've had over the last, call it month to two months in the US, one of the subtexts of it is, are the bills currently in discussion and debate dealing with the entirety of the crypto industry, inclusive of DeFi and things that touch DeFi, or are they sort of uh, really focused on centralized institutions uh, and a different type of player? And in some ways, I feel like part of the discourse that's happening is it's almost should they be separated again in the context of U.S.? Should we have more kind of discrete bills? Can we kind of turn what is uh, up for debate right now into something where, you know, DeFi is at least not uh, not kind of screwed in the short term as we figure out a, a better regulatory apparatus? Does that resonate with your experience? I mean, kind of DeFi starting to come into the spotlight as uh, is the thing almost most at risk as we get closer to kind of actually getting regulation or legislation? legislation on the books? Yeah, I think that, you know, overall, I completely agree with your assessment. I think that, uh, you know, generally, when there's legislation proposed that uh, captures DeFi, it's generally our, our experience that that's unintentional. And we can go to the to the to the member or the drafter of the legislation say, hey, look, there's this, you know, thing called DeFi. It's new and four years behind crypto as far as, excuse me, centralized players as far as the like policy regulatory conversation is concerned. And generally the reaction is like, okay, cool. Thanks for flagging that. Definitely cutting it out. I don't want to deal with this problem. Uh, because precisely the, the reason I just said, it's way too soon, I think, for comprehensive legislation to be passed that touches DeFi uh, in any way. Uh, you know, nobody was using DeFi when the first conversations about custodial spot market regulation were happening. And we're just getting, you know, years later to the point where Congress is ready, you know, industry, I think, is in agreement and movement on custodial stablecoin spot, custodial spot market regulation is baked and, uh, you know, I think appropriate uh, generally at this time. I think that the unique aspect of the DCCPA is that it did not unintentionally capture DeFi. That is uh, certainly the intent. The idea being that if you're regulating the spot markets, then regulate the spot markets, be they uh, CFI or DeFi. And that is, uh, you know, I think, rightly thrown everybody for a bit of a loop because that conversation is difficult to have in a six to eight week period under the gun of a legislative deadline, the end of the year for all intents and purposes. So I think it would be, a, you know, I think it's entirely appropriate what Micah did, which is it you know, essentially start a comprehensive process that the commission is uh, going through to consider how they're going to vindicate their policy objectives in the context of DeFi. And I hope the U.S. follows suit, uh, you know, DCCPA or not. Man, there's a lot to dig into. I'm trying to figure out the right the right kind of sequence in. Maybe let's go back to sort of the the more general piece. So holding aside the specific context of this piece of legislation uh, where this became unintentional, what has your experience been around sort of the most common questions, the most common misunderstandings among policymakers as relates to DeFi? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, I think people have a lot of trouble 
getting over like the quantum uh, step to understanding something like Bitcoin. And then they're like, oh, wait, you know, there's turtles all the way down all of a sudden with this DeFi stuff and other networks via, you know, Filecoin or the Uniswap protocol. Um, so I think there's like a bit of, of that. Uh, definitely get a lot of questions. You know, what is the difference between a cryptocurrency and a DeFi protocol? And uh, what is DeFi is definitely question number one. I think the like really more difficult, profound questions are around societal utility. I think that there are a lot of folks in Congress and among regulators that think the existing financial system works quite well, and that the risks in it, at least since uh, the global financial crisis, have been appropriately mitigated. And DeFi crypto is coming along and messing with the magic, so to speak. Um, that isn't, you know, a question that comes from a place of misunderstanding or a lack of education. It's, you know, a question of what one values and what one thinks is important as far as the goals and objectives of policy are. And that's always, you know, a much more difficult or at least a tricky conversation to have because for the most part, questions from policymakers, regulators around DeFi do stem from, you know, just a lack of awareness, education or knowledge. But for certain, for certain, uh, number one question we hear from people is, you know, what is DeFi? Want to keep more profits when trading? Get the best possible prices and trade with 50% lower fees on Nexo Pro. The new spot and futures trading platform uses aggregated liquidity of over 3,000 order books collected from multiple sources. Utilizing the complete Nexo suite allows you to earn interest and borrow funds as you wait for the next trade setup. Visit pro.nexo.io. That's pro.nexo.io and sign up today. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe, and efficient way to send money around the globe. USDC is always redeemable one-to-one -one for US dollars and has over $45 billion in circulation as of October 13th, 2022. Plus, Circle posts weekly reserve reports and monthly attestations of reserve capital, letting users know that USDC is safe, transparent, and compliant with regulations. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to see why USDC is a trusted stablecoin. Let's talk about some of the specific things, I guess, that you have been working on. And maybe let's talk about the, the Ukidao case, obviously, because that's been so uh, kind of in the news. And I guess maybe, first of all, explain a little bit about kind of how you guys you know, heard about this, uh, you know, what, what sort of initial reactions were, and then, um, you know, how you guys decided to get involved. Yeah, so I first heard about it because I subscribed to CFTC's press release emails. And I got this press release about, uh, you know, two CFTC actions, one a settlement and one a complaint. The first action was a settlement with the developers of a protocol uh, called the BZX protocol, and then a complaint against an uh, you know, alleged entity called the UkiDAO uh, that was filed in the Northern District of California. So read the complaint and uh, the theory of liability that the CFTC adopted, meaning uh, the theory, the legal theory that they're using to try and figure out 
who is responsible for the alleged uh, misconduct of the Ukidao is why we decided to get involved. Because what the CFTC said in that complaint is that any Ukidao governance token holder who voted on a governance proposal is personally liable for the functionality of the associated protocol. And uh, notwithstanding that, you know, Ukidao has some pretty unique and uh, frankly bad facts around it, that legal theory goes well beyond uh, the specifics of the Ukidao case. And as one can imagine, has pretty profound implications for every governance token holder in the United States, we think potentially, uh, which is why we wanted to get involved. Number one, to uh, explain that uh, those potential broad implications to the judge, and also to discuss whether uh, the CFTC's service to the purportedly Ukidao Governance Forum website uh, was valid service. Um, you know, one of the weird parts of this case is that the CFTC has brought complaints against uh, has brought a complaint against the Ukidao, but at the same time intends to hold those individuals, uh, governance token holders who voted liable for the Ukidao protocol's functionality. And, uh, you know, one of the points we made in our brief was that, you know, okay, if the CFTC intends to hold those people liable, they would eventually have to find those individuals. And a fundamental pillar of due process in this country is that you have fair notice that you're being sued. And so you can go and defend yourself. And so in our brief, we make the point that it would be far more appropriate if the CFTC eventually intends to find and hold those individuals liable, if they're successful in this case, that they go out and find those individuals now and serve them not via a website that is you know, purportedly affiliated with the Ukidao and those people that they intend to hold liable. Um, so there's a lot of issues at stake, you know, the service issue being a big one. Uh, but as far as, you know, I think, broad DeFi implications is concerned, certainly the idea that uh, participating in governance forever and always gives you personal liability for the functionality of the protocol uh, is top of the list. There's so much that was weird about this particular piece, and I think why it was such a flashpoint. First of all, I, you know, I think part of the reaction to the community was, and maybe this is sort of a false sense of security that never should have been the case, but there was definitely kind of a narrative of the CFTC not doing the regulation by enforcement thing that we had kind of come to expect from the SEC that went out the window. Oh, yeah. This kind of also, from a, from a timing standpoint, crashed into the fact that legislation was moving forward on kind of multiple ways to put the CFTC kind of, you know, in a more, uh, in a stronger leadership position. So you have all the people who are reacting, not just to the CFTC in general, but to the CFTC in that specific context. Um, and then you have the weirdness that, that you just articulated. And I, I think, you know, uh, listeners will be able to tell, this is, I am not a lawyer, but the, the try to cake, have your cake and eat it too moment of holding individuals liable, but then serving a, a website like autoresponder bot, basically, uh, it's just such a strange thing. And, and, you know, when the CFTC, to the extent that they've commented on it, which I think has only been, you know, the, the chairman a couple of times, it's always just about the, um, oh, well, it was so bad we had to do something as kind of relates to the, you know, the, the specific... Uh, functioning and how it relates to this other enforcement action. But, you know, it sounds like what you guys are concerned most about has almost nothing to do with that piece of the, the equation. That's right. You know, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, 
they had a governance token attached to a normal business and that wasn't registered with the CFTC. And we've gotten into this morass because for some reason, the CFTC decided to base their theory of liability on the fact that there was this purported DAO, uh, you know, attached to the side of what I think is otherwise uh, rightly potentially described as an unregistered business. What I mean by that is, you know, it's that the highest individual number of wallets that voted on a Nukidao proposal was 12. I don't know if that even represents 12 individuals. You know, it could be one guy with 12 different wallets. And so, you know, it's, I think, a very weird case for the CFTC to be making law, you know, precedent for potentially the entire country, because I think that they could have adopted other theories of liability and not heard a peep from anyone, frankly. Do you think this is reflective of sort of, uh, you know, the the it's been memefied as regulation by enforcement, but really what it is is sort of an attempt to create norms in the absence of actual lawmaking process, right? And this is what's been so frustrating to people. You know, I noticed sort of a shift probably around a year ago where crypto companies basically started to say, okay, I guess we're going to have to avail ourselves of the legal system versus kind of waiting for regulators to have substantive, proactive regulatory discussions on this stuff, because that's kind of, you know, that's your only natural response to uh, to sort of the, the actions we've seen. What is the sort of the goal or the, the hope as relates to this case? You know, what would be the positive outcome and what are the steps between here and there? You know, I think there's so many different ways that this could play out. I mean, ideally, and it's, you know, I would say probably pie in the sky, the CFTC uh, tweaks their theory of liability such that, you know, no, no other part of the case changes other than uh, they're not trying to hold people liable on the basis of having voted and using a governance token. Hold people liable, for example, for promoting an unregistered futures commission merchant making money off of it, promoting it on Twitter, what have you. Anything other than, you know, DAO governance token holder. Uh, that would be number one. Um, you know, there's infinite possibilities, but there is a process that is in place moving forward. Uh, the judge originally granted the CFTC's motion for alternative service, uh, essentially saying the court ruled that the CFTC's service to the website was valid. Uh, which is something we commented on in our brief and asked the judge to consider reconsidering that order, uh, which he has agreed to. So the ball is now in CFTC's court to respond to ours and others' uh, amicus briefs uh, to essentially argue that their service was valid. Uh, We will be able to respond to their response by November 14th, and then it will go to oral arguments on uh, November 30th. Um, so we'll have much more clarity on you know where things go from there. Uh, there is no you know de- no defendant has showed up. So right now we nor other Amici are parties to the case. So uh, it kind of puts us in a weird situation. Um, but we'll see where the judge goes after November thirtieth. Yeah, I, weird. I think is a good description of it. But <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. What no. it's like to live at the frontier. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly cutting edge. In a bad way this time. <laughs> yeah, right. What are other kind of big flashing red topics for you guys outside of this particular case that you're thinking a lot about? Uh, this and DCCPA is really uh, top of the list right now. You know, Congress is kind of winding down. 
The elections are coming up. I don't think the stablecoin package is going to move this year. Uh, yeah, they, no, they haven't even released a draft yet, but I think that will be top of mind next year. And then there are some more, you know, latent issues that I'm always thinking about and worried about. Number one is the SEC's exchange rulemaking. Um, they issued a notice of proposed rulemaking uh, earlier this year and solicited comment on a proposal to expand the definition of a national securities exchange to include persons who, quote unquote, make available, quote unquote, communication protocol systems. Anyone who does that, uh, they don't define what a communication protocol system is, which means it could be interpreted, you know, in any which way as uh, potentially being national securities exchanges that would have to comply with regulations like the New York Stock Exchange. They never mentioned crypto or DeFi in that rulemaking. So, you know, we are dealing with smoke signals here. But it seems that based on, on our understanding, you know, at the very least, it would have implications for DeFi, uh, intended or unintended, a bit beside the point. Ball is in the SEC's court on that one. Uh, they could finalize it this evening, or we could never hear about it again, which is, you know, what we're hoping for, at least what I'm hoping for. Uh, and then it, uh, I think the, the other issue that is top of mind right now is Tornado Cash. Uh, we're seeking a, a general license for U.S. persons who had assets in the protocol before its designation. And uh, it, I think my number one objective there is to uh, convince folks in, in Treasury and the government that you know, sanctioning open source software protocols is uh, a bad idea for many reasons. Number one being that it doesn't accomplish their objectives in any coherent or systemic way the goal being that you know they don't do that again i think is uh is the best outcome from uh the tornado cast situation uh we'll see you know whether they have the legal basis to there are multiple challenges in the works uh some individuals and from coin center um so we'll be closely monitoring those uh, Grayscale litigation is active. Ripple litigation is active. Um, so there's a lot going on right now. Europe is working on their DeFi reports. Uh, UK has a lot going on themselves right now, but uh, crypto and DeFi being one of them. Um, encourage that. You know, uh, Mac is going to be prime minister. He's probably like the most uh, crypto-friendly legislator outside of Lisa Cameron in Parliament. So that will be interesting to see play out. Some of the international groups like IOSCO, which is kind of the uh, international club for securities and market regulators, is putting together a DeFi report. So there's a lot going on. I know I'm forgetting like 18 things, but uh, definitely right now, top of mind, DCCPA, Ukida. So in an ideal world, with all of this going on, you, you could press a freeze button and just spend a year, two years teaching, uh, you know, policymakers about this space. Practically speaking, how much do you anticipate this being just live fire drills from here to forever, where hopefully each time you kind of fight off the worst excesses of what uh, what legislation might do, and then uh, and hopefully kind of teach some people along the way, versus there being sort of a more proactive policy, you know, advocacy, you know, educational element uh, along the way. Yeah, you know, I, I think that part of my job is equipping 
my organization to be able to do both, which is why I need to raise a bunch of money. I think that there is no prospect uh, for anyone in DeFi policy to not be dealing with live fire drills over the next 10 years, probably. And so it's a matter of being able to to walk and chew gum at the same time, because you're absolutely right. You know, being proactive is hard to do when there's so much going on. But I think to get to a good place down the road, it's absolutely critical. From the standpoint of uh, the average kind of enfranchised crypto user who cares about these issues, what are the best ways to sort of uh, be a part of the fight in a way that's sort of more than just arguing on Twitter? Yeah, the number one proactive thing you can do is email uh, or call your congressional office and explain to them why you care about DeFi, why you think it's useful, why you think it's cool and should be protected. You know, the more that legislators hear from constituents who are, you know, the people they care about, uh, that they care about the tech and their ability to use it, uh, the way better all of this will eventually uh, shake out. Because, you know, if they've heard from a few constituents and this issue pops up, they will not only recognize, you know, what the term DeFi means, but also be like, oh, you know, I do have constituents that care about this, uh, which is uh, very, very important. So I think that, you know, if there's one thing I think that people can do proactively to, you know, advance, uh, hopefully what ends up being a good outcome here is to speak up as to why they care about DeFi, why they use it, and uh, tell their elected representatives that. Awesome. Well, listen, Miller, I, super great to hear kind of more of the inside baseball of this stuff. I would love to have you back, uh, especially as, as Uki evolves and you guys are kind of, you know, uh, learning more about the state of play on the ground. And, and in general, keep up the good work. And we appreciate all you guys are doing. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. One of the most interesting trends for me over the last year or so is the crypto industry getting comfortable availing itself of the legal system. And I think I want to point out that this is not an antagonistic thing, despite the fact that obviously all legal challenges have an element of antagonism to them. What you're seeing in cases like the Okidao case and DeFi Education Fund getting involved is basically people with deep legal knowledge and deep crypto knowledge saying, look, we got to have it out about how the traditional system is going to absorb or adapt these new forces. And one of the ways that we can do that is through legal challenge. I think that we should see this not as some scary step or a sign that things are getting more contentious in D.C., but that things are actually progressing towards some outcomes that provide clarity and insight and new battles to fight. I want to thank Miller not only for being on the show, but for his and everyone else who's in D.C.'s work trying to fight for those positive outcomes. I also want to say thanks again one more time to my sponsors, Nexo.io, Circle, and thanks to you guys for listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.